We are working through the book of Ephesians, and last week, one of the things we talked about, I shared that all of us have a concept of God. We have a view of who God is. And um, that concept of who God is was shaped uh, very much by our denominational or church background. And uh, if you're like me, I grew up in the church, and I have a wonderful church background, kind of weird, kind of wacky at times, but, but it was all good. And so growing up and then into my early 20s and going to seminary and all that, I've been a part of a a number of churches, sat under a number of pastors, and have actually been part of several denominations. And so I've got to see things from sort of a a unique advantage point, but uh, our vantage point. Uh, One of the churches that I was part of, uh, we always had what I like to call the yelling pastor. And uh, each week they would yell at us for an hour and there was a lot of pointing like, like this. And we called that fire and brimstone preaching. How many of you have ever heard something like that? Okay, good. Um, and uh, so actually after the first service, I shared that. And uh, one of the guys who grew up in church with me came up to me and he says, you mean Pastor Saws? And I said, yes, that's exactly. So, so, so we, we, we know. And um, so... But he was just always so angry as, as he talked to the congregation. And, and so, you know, we thought his favorite verse was like, you know, for God was so angry at the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, but he just, and, and the thing that really hit me about that is that after the service, I mean, this guy would just beat us up for an hour and tell us how we're in sin and bad and all that. And then after the service in, in that church and the pastor would go stand at the back door and all the people would walk out. And uh, the, the ladies would say, Oh, pastor, I needed that today. <laughs> and I'd be like, you're 80 years old. What have you been doing? <laughs> and and the, old, the old men would be saying, now that's good preaching there, you know, they, but they believe that that's what, it, what good preaching was. But you always felt that God was mad at you. And, and, uh, but what happens is when you, you're in an environment like that, that begins to shape your concept of who God is, that God's constantly mad at you. And uh, many people have walked away because, you know, it's hard to love and follow a God that deep down you think he's just, he's just mad at you. So that's part of my church background. Then other churches that I've been part of where I actually went to seminary, um, they wouldn't say it outright, but you sort of got the feeling that you're, you were right with Jesus based upon all the stuff you didn't do. And we had a list of all the stuff that we didn't do. Anybody come from a church like that? Yeah, and so there was no dancing, there was no movies, there was no secular movement, uh, music, and it just went on and on and on. And, and so we looked at people and judge their spiritual maturity based upon the list of things that they did not do. And and I would suggest that in some of those churches, they took the good news and they turned it into the bad news. And many people would walk away from the faith saying, I just, I just can't do that. I, you know, as if Jesus saying, I came that you might have rules and have it more abundantly. And they say, I just can't do that. Because when you live in that environment and you go to that kind of church, it begins to shape your concept of God. And again, many people would just walk away saying, I just, I can't keep that many rules. Well, others of us, we come from a different background. We come from the, the church where you got to do your part. You got to do your part. So my aunt, she would always say, well, I have to maintain the state 
of grace. How many of you come from a church background and you've heard that? Maintain the state of grace. So for her, it would mean that she had to go to mass so many times a week. She had to go to confession. And then in order to get back right with God, she's going to have to say a prayer so many times to get right back up there. But when she dies, she knows uh, she's going to go into the fire for a while. She's going to burn until she's completely purified. And so she came from that. Well, when, when, when you have that presentation of who God is, it, it shapes your concept of God. Is that really who God is and is that really how he interacts with his people? So the question that I want to answer today, or at least begin the conversation, is what is God really like and, and what does he think of me? What does he think of me? And it might be different than the environments that we grow, grew up in. So I'm going to focus today. We're going we're gonna to go through the chapter, at least the first 14 verses. I can't camp out anywhere because there's so much, but I want to give you just enough to at least begin to possibly reshape our concept of who God is as we go. So you're good with that? So um, as we get into this now from last week, there's a couple of things that, that we shared and uh, there in, on your outline, you want to write down, we, we talked about this last week, but verses three through 14 are one sentence, one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. And so last week I shared how when you go to seminary and there's this whole argument, did Paul really write this? One of the tests would be how long are the sentences? Because he would write these incredibly long sentences. And uh, this is one of those cases. And then we talked about how in the original language in Greek, there's, there's no punctuation, so there's no periods, there's no commas, and they also didn't capitalize letters and, and then have the rest be, be smaller letters. They're just all, all one letter and no spaces in between the words. So your translators, when they would translate into English, uh, they realized that we can't wrap our minds around a sentence that goes 12 verses. So they would put in commas and periods in order to, for it to make sense. And that's good. It needed to happen. But the challenge with that is that it might be a translation, but the commas and the periods become an interpretation. And so that we have to be aware of that as we go through this. So last week we looked at verse four. Everybody just look at verse eight real quick. And uh, I just do this uh, real quick, but in verse eight, it talks about, well, I'll go back, verse seven. Uh, the last line of verse seven, the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now, how many of you have a period after us? Okay, all right. So some of your Bibles take that. They interpret it that way. Others say the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And they put the period after the word insight or something like prudence or something like that. How many of you have a Bible like that? Okay. And uh, then some of us, we have... Uh, we, uh, the New King James, and it'll say the riches of his grace, and I think there's going to be a comma there, which he lavished on us, comma, and all wisdom and insight or prudence, and there's a comma there. How many of you have a bunch of commas? Okay. So that, you're going to go like three or four verses, and it's just going to be comma, comma, comma. And uh, that's the, you know, just trying to capture the original. So, so just be aware of that as we go. Uh, because it, it's all an interpretation and we want to see if we can get the heart of God as we go through this. By the way, do you find that at all interesting? Okay, for the three of you, good. We're going we're gonna to go. All right, so we're going to jump in. We covered some of this last week, but uh, we'll, we'll have to move somewhat fast. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you and, and I'm sorry for that, but it's like one, one thing and we got to talk about it. So verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
to the saints, underline saints, who are at Ephesus, who are, faith, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And uh, we underlined that last week and this week too. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or the, the Lord Jesus. So the, last week we began and we said that, and you wanna write this down, Ephesians is written to those who are in Christ, in Christ. And uh, so you're gonna find that phrase, in Christ or in him, 36 times in this book. Uh, to be in Christ is, for Paul, the most important theological point. And he's gonna constantly hammer being in Christ. And then also in verse one, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. And it's important to know that he is writing to the saints in Ephesus. In the New Testament, saints are people who were in Christ, not dead people who had passed away, who became saints. They're just the people who are in Christ. So you want to write down, we are, this, we are saints because we are in Christ. So God sees you as a saint if you are in Christ. Not because of your behavior, but you are in Christ. And so from God's point of view, you are a saint. So you should introduce yourself to the people around you as, hi, I'm saint so-and-so. And I would greatly appreciate it from this point on if you just refer to me as Saint Dan. That would be just encouraging. Well, don't do that. What I did wanna highlight though, and it'll be important for our study, is the word saints in the original language is the word hagios. Hagios, there on your outline. And it just means to be set apart for God. Now, we tend to think of saints as somebody who died and there was a miracle or uh, something that happened, but it just means that, that they're set apart for God. So you are saints from God's perspective. So that, that's good. So, dear saints, verse three um, is considered to be the theme of the whole letter. And so verse three, and I'm gonna put this on our outline just because if you have the NIV, it's awesome, but it misses the word play that, that Paul is, is using here. So on your outline, to the saints, blessed, and uh, you see the word eulogitos, and uh, we would say eulogitos, but, but eulogitos, eulogitos, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed eulogitos, with every spiritual blessing, eulogia, in the heavenly places. Now, the reason uh, I wanted to highlight that is the word blessed in, in Greek is the word that we get our English word eulogy, just means to bless. Why nobody ever says anything bad about somebody at a funeral when they give the, the eulogy. So this blessing. So here, when you read it, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God has blessed us with spiritual blessings and more, but um, I want you to write this down. Because you're a saint and you are in Christ, uh, all of God's blessings are mine. All of God's blessings are mine. You wanna write that down. Now, based upon your concept of God, uh, will determine how hard it is for you to write this next line. He has blessed us, blessed us, blessed us. And uh, so from that, you wanna write down, God wants me to be blessed. God wants me to be blessed. So he, he blessed us. And uh, because God has blessed us, we're gonna want to return and be a blessing to God. 
So then the question is, how has God blessed us? Well, in this chapter alone, I'm giving you the short list. There's more, but just the short list, and I put it right there in your outline. Every spiritual blessing. So in this chapter, you have election, adoption, grace, forgiveness, revelation, wisdom, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll find that the Holy Spirit is the primary gift, and he is also the source of all the other gifts, the blessings. And so we'll, we'll see that as we go. So God, to you saints, he wants you to be blessed just as, verse four. Does verse four in your Bible begin with just as, just as? Do most of your Bible say that? Verse four begins with just as. And uh, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, my Bible has a period after him, so we'll, we'll, we'll let that go to the next verse, at least for right now. Last week, we dealt with God choosing you and me before the foundation of the world, so I, I won't unpack that. This week, we took the whole time last week, but God chose all of us, and the reason for that is it's important, so you never have to worry about, did God choose me? Yes, he chose everybody. The question is, have you chosen him? But he's chosen you. That's why in John it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave, he loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, it's open to everyone, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What that means on a personal level for you and I, um, he chose us who would, not, who would be in him but those of us who are in him. Um, you wanna write this down, that I was on God's mind before creation. He was thinking about me. And that's important because you want to write this down. God chose me before I did anything for God. Before I ever did anything for God. He chose me before I ever behaved so that his choosing of me would not be based upon my behavior. So he chose you before you behaved and as Spurgeon said, it's good that he chose me back then because if he saw my behavior, he might not choose me now. And so some of us could testify to that. So he chose me before I did anything for God. Then it says there in verse four, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be, be holy and blameless. So he chose us that we would be holy and blameless. So from God's perspective, and I want you to write this down, I am blameless in his sight. I am blameless in his sight, which is important because if you come from a church background where you always feel like you're just not good enough, like there's something wrong with you, uh, he would want you to know that you are blameless in his sight. He doesn't hold anything against you. But then it says holy and blameless. It would be holy and blameless in his sight. Um, the word holy there, now in verse one, we talked about the saints. And we, we highlighted that the word saints in the original language is the word hagios, hagios. It's interesting that the word holy is the same word hagios. Does everybody see that there on your outline? So it's the, 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 exact, same, the exact same word. So you're a saint because you are in him and because you are in him, you are also Holy. But our concept of holy is slightly different. We tend to look at people uh, as being more holy than, than other people. You're holy because you are in him. But what does holy mean? Well, there again, there in your outline, it just means to be set 
apart for God. That's what it means. You're set apart for God. So when God looks at you, uh, there in your outline, you want to write down, I am set apart for special use. There's something that God wants to do in me. There's something that he wants to do through me. And uh, you want to write down, that means I have a purpose. I have a purpose. God has a unique purpose for each person. There's a distinctive service that he calls us to. And, and the great adventure is finding out what it is, uh, God's distinct purpose for each one of us. That's the great adventure is finding that out. Because what God does, because he's got a unique purpose for you, he's going to give you giftings, we'll call those spiritual gifts to be used. And when you operate in your giftedness, in how God designed you, you're going to find that your life and your Christian life is going to become very fulfilling. And it's not just going to be, I go to church, because you're going to sense God using you in a very specific way. Does that make sense? So very, very important. So in order for you saints to live out that special use Um, that special purpose, God is going to, and I put verse five on your outline, but I've attached the last two words of verse four. It says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted. And I want you to underline that word adopted as his sons, daughters too, by the way, through Jesus Christ in accordance with, and, and please underline this, his pleasure, his pleasure and will. So we're going to go to the front and back of our outline here as, as we unpack this. But, but um, something that we need to understand, when you became a Christian, Jesus would say it like this there on your outline. He says, you must be born again. If you're a Christian, you have been born again. There was a time when you were not born, but then you were born, and now it's an entirely new existence. So spiritually speaking, you are born into God's family. And this is such a, a great thing. And the reason that he uses the, the concept of being born again, you were born physically into your family, but now you're born spiritually into his family. And that means that he becomes your father. You've been born into his family. Now, why does he use that? And why is this so great? Um, parents, let, let me say it like this. Do you have any idea what my kids have put me through? Would you parents agree that that they put you through some stuff? There's been some stuff. Do you have any idea what my kids have cost me? Do you know I used to not have gray hair? And then I had kids. And and it's like they've they've put me through some stuff. Now, parents, am I alone in this? But, But here's the thing. They're my kids. They're my kids. So you look at them and you might go, they're jerks. I go, yeah, but I think they're great. And they are. So, so, but they're my kids. So when God says you're born again, it means you're part of his family and he loves you, just like you love your child. So it's, it's the same with, with God. Now, God knew when you were born, there was gonna be some stuff. There's gonna be some stuff. You're gonna be part of his family. There's just stuff. So you're born into God's family, but to use those blessings that God has given to you, now you need to be Adopted, which is a very different term, a very different term. Uh, adoption is not a Jewish term, it's a Roman term. 
And it doesn't mean how we think about it here in, in uh, 2022. Uh, there on your outline, adoption, huyothesian. Uh, Huyos uh, just means a son, means to place. It literally means a son place. It's the son place. Um, but what I've done, and I never do this, but I've taken two commentaries that, that define this for us just so that you know I'm not making this up, okay? So that, that's just for this reason. So if you were to take Wearsby's commentary, there on your outline, Wearsby's commentary says, adoption in the New Testament refers to the official act of a father who bestows the status of, underline, full adulthood, full adulthood on a son of minor status. It is not the taking in of an outsider, as maybe we think about it today, of, of an outsider. It is the placing of a family member into the privileges, underline, and the blessings of adulthood. This means that even the youngest Christian has everything that Christ has and is rich in grace. So, so it means that you, you are placed as an adult, which means that you have access to everything that, that he has. Now, if you were to take the Bible exposition commentary, it would say it like this. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones, born again, an adult standing in the family. So, so when God adopts you, um, you're born again, but now you are, have a status that you have an adult standing in the family. We'll talk about that. So that little verse there again, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So write this down and we'll talk about it. It was God's pleasure. It was God's pleasure to give me, all who are in him, the privileges and blessings of an adult child. The privileges and blessings of an adult child. You see, an infant can't use their inheritance. Uh, you have to wait till they, they grow up. But an adult can. So you, you don't give little children the keys to the car. You don't give them the, the you know, access to the bank account. You wait till they grow up. But spiritually speaking, as it relates to the spiritual blessings, God gives all of us the adult status so that it's all available for us right now, which means I don't have to grow up before I have access to it. It's not when you get ready, it's God gives you that. You, you have that adult status as it relates to his blessing. So you can receive those now. And it was his good pleasure to give that to you. So not only has he, was it his good pleasure to give adult status, uh, privileges and status to us, but he also wanted us to know there on your outline, verse six, I put verse six on your outline, to the praise of his, to the praise of the glory of his grace, grace in, in Greek is charis, wherein he has made us accepted, and it's ikeratuo, there in the beloved. Now, charis and ikeratuo are, are essentially the same word. You have grace, it's, it's, it's the, essentially the word. So if I say run, running, or ran, it's all the same thing, just from a different angle. So when you look at that ikeratuo, I need to stop doing that. But if you look at the definition of that word and why this is so important, keratuo means to grace, to endue with, underline, special honor, to make accepted, and underline, to be highly 
favored, highly favored. So it was his pleasure to give you the adult blessings and privileges, and he wants you to know, and you want to write this down, that I am highly favored by God. You are highly favored by God, and you want to write that down. Now, that's important that you're highly favored by God because he knew the situation that you and I were in before, before we became part of his family. So verse seven and eight, he goes on to say, in him, in him, we have redemption, underline redemption, through his blood, underline that, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the, and I want you to underline, riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And my Bible has a period in all wisdom and insight. We'll talk about that. But does your Bible have the word lavished? That's such a good, I know some of your Bibles will say abounded or abounding, something like that. That's good, it's all good. Redemption, so we have redemption. There on your outline, redemption, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce that word, but it means the act of paying the ransom in full, the ransom in full. So here's how this works. There's something that you love very much and somebody takes it from you and they won't give it back to you. And they say, I'll give it back to you if you pay the ransom. And you, and you say, because I love that, in this case, person, people, you and I as believers, uh, he says, I'm willing to pay the whole price in order to get you back. That's what it means, to pay the price. Now, again, I don't typically put commentaries on your outline, but this is important to understand um, when you think about redemption. Now, I'm so old that, that redemption to me meant my mom would make us take the S&H green stamps and put them in the books, and then we go to the redemption center. How many of you are old enough to remember that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those of you who don't remember that, you had like no kind of childhood. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Licking those stamps. Child abuse. Anyways, so redemption though, redemption in the first century. There in your outline. In the first century, this, is, this comes from the NIV Life Application Commentary. In the first century Hellenistic world, redemption was used rarely. It was not common. But it was used in connection with the purchase of a slave's freedom. So the idea that you would use this if you were paying the price to buy somebody out of slavery. So Paul's readers would have understood this word mean to purchase somebody out of bondage, to, to free them. So that's how Paul would understand. Now important also in verse seven, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus didn't buy us back through his love. He does love us, but it, it took more than his love to buy us back. And it wasn't his moral example that purchased us back. It was his blood. That is, he had to step into our place and pay the price through his blood to purchase us back. But he loved us so much, he said, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I want you back. So he has purchased us back. And, and uh, when Paul talks about salvation, if you come from a church background like I do, it's typically talk about forgiveness of your sins, and that's certainly part of it. 
But when you read through Paul, it's, it's constantly talking about releasing you from a bondage, from a tyrant. You're being saved. You're, you're rescued. So that's, that's his, his idea. So he ransomed us so that he could, verse 7, um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according. Now here's what he's done because he's ransomed us back. Redemption. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now, some would say in all wisdom and insight, and uh, others leave that, put a period right there. Um, Paul says that in his great grace, he has now lavished his grace upon us. He purchased us, paid the ransom, so that he could lavish us with his grace. God knew before the foundation of the world, he knew that you would one day say yes. But he also knew that you were gonna do some stuff. And he wasn't going to lose you again like we were lost in the Garden of Eden. He says, I'm gonna do this differently. So that when I purchase you back, you're going to belong to me. And when you mess up, I'm going to respond by lavishing you with my grace, with my grace. So no matter what mess you make, he has more grace because he already knew that you were going to do it in the first place. And he planned before the foundation of the world to pour grace out upon you when you made that mess. So I want you to write this down. I have God's lavished grace. Quick survey, how many of you have needed God's lavished grace? Yeah, we, we didn't need just the usual grace, we needed the lavished grace that's poured out. Now that's important because the pastor that yelled at us and told us that we weren't, um, he didn't understand the lavished grace. The, the one who said, you've got to keep all these rules, they didn't understand no, it's, he's lavishing us with his grace. The one who said, you gotta pray this prayer so many times and you gotta do this, you gotta do that, they didn't understand it was his lavished grace that he was going to pour out on us and he knew he was going to do that before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense? So it's very different than some of the church background that some of us would come from. So some say there in verse eight, he lavished on us uh, in all wisdom and insight. Now, some pre- people put the period there. Others put the period at the end. And some would say that he lavished us um, with, uh, with his grace and, um, and, he lavished, and with all wisdom and understanding. They would say that you get his lavished grace, but then you also get his wisdom and understanding. And that's true. Others would say, and, and I would hold, that he, in his, he lavished us with his grace Um, in his wisdom uh, because he knew that he had to do that because there's no way I could make it on my own. So in his wisdom, he said, I'm choosing before the foundation of the world that when you mess up, and I already know you're going to, uh, I'm gonna lavish you and that's gonna be my wisdom because if I left you to your own, you might wind up again like Adam and Eve in the garden, out of the garden. So he says, I'm not doing that anymore. Hopefully that makes sense. Verse nine and 10. I'm just gonna read this and we'll go on. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention. I like the translation that says according to his good 
pleasure, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, in Christ again, things in heaven and things on the earth. And then I have a period after earth, and it goes on, in him would be the next sentence. In this, and there's a lot here, I'm not gonna spend time on it, but let me just say this, that, that he has chosen to reveal his plan to you and me. Write that down. Uh, the world has no idea what's going on and his plan is going to be that he is the center of all things and it's all going according to his plan. And uh, again, they have no idea, the world has no idea. Much, much more there. But verse 11, verse 11, when things are summed up, as he says, I put verse 11 there on your outline, taking the last two words of verse 10, in him, we, those of us, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things together after the counsel of his will. So you want to write down that those of us who are in him, we, us, um, we have an inheritance. I have an inheritance. And you want to write that down. This isn't where it ends for you and I. We have an inheritance. The inheritance that he has for us is the part that is predestined. For those of us who are in him, the inheritance is predestined by the God who's going to work it all out to make sure that it's there for us when we get there so that we we can't mess that up. So the blessings aren't just for here, but it's for for there also. Verse 12, we talked about this last week, so I'm just going to go through it quick. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening, some of your Bibles would say had heard, however, it says it, to the message of truth, the gospel, gospel just means good news, of your salvation, having also believed, underline believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge, underline pledge, of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Make sure you underline God's possession or possession to the praise of his glory. So last week when we went through this and we looked at verse 13, um, we we talked about how it, it says that you heard it, then you believed it, and then you were sealed. You heard it, believed it, and and you were sealed. So we talked about that last week. Now, when you were sealed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means that you're now in him. So verse 14, it says, the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, given as a pledge of our inheritance. The, and you want to write down, the Holy Spirit is the pledge of my inheritance. Uh, Commentators will say that in Greece today, they use this word, a pledge, and uh, it's the same word for engagement ring. The idea is it's the down payment of what's to come. You give the engagement ring, you're kind of promising you're going to be there at, at, at the wedding is the idea. So it's the down payment of everything that is to come. So he's given us the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of what's to come. So what's to come is going to be even better is the idea. But then he says, verse 14, let me read verse 13, the last line. 
having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, down payment, of our inheritance. We get the bulk of it later, but we still got quite a bit now. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession, God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I'm sealed uh, by the Holy Spirit to convey his ownership of me. And you want to write that down, his ownership of me. Did we write that down already? Okay, okay. So I'm going to write that down. So I am, when it talks about God's possession, so when you think of God's possession, he redeemed you, he owns you now. Once he owns you, it's no longer your choice because you've been sealed in him. So if I go out and really blow it, and I don't want to, but if I do, he's going to just lavish more grace upon me because he now owns me. So it's no longer like Adam and Eve in the garden. You see, Adam and Eve, they they were told, don't do this, and if you do this, you're going to be out. But God now, in his wisdom, realized there's no way that you and I could maintain it. So God says, in my wisdom now, I'm going to purchase you back you now belong to me and I'm going to seal you in me and you won't be able to unseal yourself. So I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit to convey his ownership and it also conveys my security in him, my security in him. God's not going to let us go, not gonna just let us go. So my security in him. So, did you at least find that interesting today? I know that there's a lot. So, so let me just recap. All of God's blessings are yours now. They're yours if, if you want them. And he wants you as his children to be blessed. How many of you want to see your children blessed? All of us. Well, you're created in the image of God. Alligators don't care if their children are blessed, but God does. And you do because you're created in the image of God. He chose you and was thinking about you before you ever did anything for him. And he sees you blameless in his sight. Now, we don't always see ourselves blameless, but he says, I I, I see you blameless in my sight. And he has set you apart for special use. That is, there's a purpose for you. That's why you want to discover that and discover the gifts that he has for you because when you use that, your Christian experience is gonna be very fulfilling, very fulfilling, more than just I go to church. And he wants you to know that you are highly favored by God. He adores you, he loves you. And he will lavish you, lavish on you his grace when you mess up. So there's not something that you have to do to get back into his grace, he chose before the foundation of the world that when you messed up, you're in him, he's just gonna pour the grace out on you. Is that a little bit different than the God that you were taught about growing up in your church? And and, and sadly, um, many of us were taught that God was angry or he, uh, it was all about following rules. That's about a relationship, it's about a relationship. And he wants that relationship with you. But for many of us, uh, that relationship, that concept of God was distorted. So as I close in prayer today, as we close, you have the opportunity 
to uh, invite the Jesus of the Bible, the God who adores you, highly favors you, who wants to have, who showers you, you know, with his grace, you have the opportunity to embrace that God. And uh, if you want that, he wants that for you because he wants you to be in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, these concepts, which might be a little bit strange because of our, our church upbringing, our background. But uh, Lord, we wanna know who you are and uh, we wanna follow you. So for those of us who maybe weren't introduced to the God that we talked about today, we just say, Jesus, Jesus of the Bible, the one who loved me, who ransomed me, who paid the ultimate price, I want you. I want you to come into my life. I'm inviting you right now. And I thank you for forgiving me of everything I've ever done. And I thank you, Lord, for lavishing your grace upon me as I go forward. And he promises that if you invite him in, he'll never leave. You belong to him now. And that he's the one who is sealing you so that you can't get you out. Lord, I I thank you for this congregation, their love for you, their love for the things of you, their love for your word and your spirit. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.